Hello and welcome to the Coffee and Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Wand. We have the pleasure today of listening to co-author of a gothic cookbook, Alessandra Pino, who will be talking to us today about the concept of dark food. But rather than ask what drink you were having for the show, Allie, would you like to start? I would. Are you worried about asking me what drink? Because last time I had some Kahlua, so, you know, I think so, it's short. Well, no, so here's the thing. Like, <laughs> usually bonus episodes, because people are talking, I'm like, just feel free to go in. But um, if you want to, I mean, uh, if you want to tell us what you're, what you're hiding under that table of yours, I, you're welcome um, to. That's water today. Sorry to disappoint, but just water. Thank you so much for having me back on. I'm really excited about this because this is my research and I'm completing a PhD at the University of Westminster. Um, so this is research on how food is used to express anxiety. And my aim is to offer a new interpretation of the relationship between food and cultural memory, starting from the concept of Gothic food and its link to colonialism. So lots of different bits. Um, but cultural memory here acts as an understanding of memory, not just as an individual private experience, but as part of a collective domain. And the idea is that events occurring now in the present can help shape our understanding of the past, and we interact with the past in a way that affects our present. So it's something quite um, close to my heart and topical. It's something that I'm studying at the moment. So uh, my focus is on the construction of cultural memory through food. So the end of the 20th century saw Western nations manifesting a preoccupation with collective memory, followed closely by an anxiety about forgetting that has continued to unfold in more recent times. So the West's quest in the context of cultural memory has consisted in this anxious search for a narrative landscape of the past where its people could build an identity in the present. Um, the appropriation of roots for an identity that could be claimed and that could be continued could be, yeah, could continue to be shaped essentially. Um, and there's been a memory boom in recent decades, especially when it comes to events concerning the First and Second World Wars, for instance. And that's most likely because of the loss of that generation that had firsthand experience of it. So commemorative events that have really flourished and also technology has an important role in all this because computers and the way that we're able to store data allows us to keep an unimaginable amount of information now, creating what has been defined as a global mega archive. <laughs> so we have lots, to, lots of information that we can access and pictures that we didn't have before, etc. Um, so this original idea that I'm working on is called Dark Food. And it's essentially a reliving of a traumatic experience through a language that relies on food. And in the context of the author that I'm looking at, who is the Cuban-American writer, Cristina Garcia, dark food is exemplified by sugar. Um, so we'll be talking a little bit about that today. Um, I'll tell you a bit about Cristina Garcia. She's a Cuban-American writer who centers her novels around the upheaval of the Cuban revolution in 1959 and the exile and migration that followed this event. So her use of sugar in her novels is an example of dark food because of how the legacies of slavery tied into the sugar plantations in Cuba are paralleled to a consumption of processed sugar in the US. Um, I'm hoping to provide through my research an insight into the legacies of slavery and its relationship to capitalism. So dark food can really provide a lens through which we can observe how consumption can both passively and actively shed some light on some really complex identitarian issues that allow for alternative interpretations of the past. 
Um, the term dark is actually already in use in relation to memory and consumption within the field of tourism. So the phrase dark tourism was first coined by Malcolm Foley and John Lennon in 1996, and it focuses on the relationship between tourist attractions and death. So dark tourism tourism is considered a form of consumption itself, as other are also other forms of tourism, I guess, though it isn't necessarily death that motivates visitors. Um, rather, this type of tourism can be part of a journey that includes learning about commemoration and how identities are forged. Um, an example is the Tribute World Trade Visitor Center at Ground Zero in New York, where visitors are encouraged to write their own thoughts and feelings with regards to the attack in a dedicated remembrance room. And then these writings are displayed collectively for other people to see and experience. So again, we have this interaction between past and present in this way. But in Garcia's literature, her most famous novel is probably Dreaming in Cuban, published in 1992, which I have here. And sugar plantations are nearly always there as a link between past and present. So I focused on sugar and the introduction of the plantation system of cultivating sugarcane, as this was one of the most significant events in history in terms of its impact on societies across the Caribbean and the contrasts that have arisen due to this juxtaposition between the commercial power of sugar and the people producing it, which is, is what makes the product so important, I think, in Garcia's work. Um, maybe we can go back a little bit into the history of sugar. It could be useful. So Christopher Columbus's second voyage beginning in 1493 brought sugarcane to the Caribbean from the Canary Islands, and thereafter it became the dominant crop in the economy of the Caribbean region as a whole, although only in the 1800s did it come to fully dominate Cuba. And slavery on Cuba's sugarcane plantations and the subsequent forms of labor which took its place was part of the system of capitalism and its driving force. Um, the process of deculturation that was carried out on the plantations was designed to make it difficult for enslaved people to communicate with each other, thus and um, this prevented social cohesion, obviously. So Cuba became financially annexed to, the nor to North America when the 1871 Sugar Act was passed, ruling that the island could only trade with the US and that the prices were controlled basically by the New York Produce Exchange. Following US intervention in the 1898 Cuban War of Independence from Spain, several Spanish colonies were handed over to the US and Cuba became a US protectorate. Um, although the island was officially independent, a change to the, its constitution gave the US the right to intervene in its internal affairs and to establish a military base at Guantanamo Bay. So from the end of the 19th century, Cuba became the center of world sugarcane production by the 1950s, almost all the sugar grown in Cuba was exported to the United States. And in 1956, Fidel Castro and Che Guevara began a revolutionary war against Fulgencio Batista's US-backed dictatorship. And the culmination of this war saw Batista fleeing the island and the formation of Castro's new government, one which expressed an ambition to free the island from US influence through a process of nationalization and land reform. Um, the wages of the sugar laborers were pegged to the annual market price of sugar, which meant that these workers' livelihoods were impacted by fluctuations in production. And so sugar became a symbol of Cuba's independence to, uh, sorry, dependence to the to United States. So though Castro made it part of his manifesto to oppose class hierarchy and difference, um, the capitalist system on which Cuba's subsistence depended was tied to the same colonialist blueprint that had perpetuated and continued to uphold 
legacies of slavery. So creating some a kind of vicious cycle. Um, following the Cuban Revolution and Castro's rise to power in 1959, many people left Cuba for the US in search of temporary political asylum, convinced that the regime wouldn't last long, and they became known as Cuban Americans, a community whose status as exiles distinguished them from other North Americans of Hispanic origin, as it was assumed that their residence in the US would be temporary. Um, Cuban Americans like Garcia form a distinct second generation minority group, which includes individuals who arrived in the US from Cuba when they were children, and those born to Cuban parents in the US. So that's a little bit of background on kind of the, what ties Cuba and the US um, so strongly, obviously, through sugar, through the production of sugar. And food and memory are central themes in many works by Cuban American novelists, such as Garcia. And women are, in fact, usually considered to embody strong links between Cuba and Cuban Americans in the US. So they're seen as mediators who support the peacemaking process between the two countries, maintaining communication and acting as a bridge between members of families fractured after the rise of Castro. So where families were divided, there were widespread efforts among older Cuban women who refused to leave the island and the younger generation of women who had fled to the US um, to try and keep connections alive. Um, in Garcia's novels, there's an intersection between cultural memory, food and the Gothic via sugar. And food has increasingly become, I argue, a way of exploring the negative. And this is true most of all in how it's depicted in the horror and Gothic genres. Um, so I specifically consider the use of sugar as an example of food horror that carries within it a historical violence linked to colonialism and enslavement on the plantations. Um, the Gothic side, so the, ri the rise of, in imports of goods from the colonies meant that products such as sugar became widely available to purchase in Europe during the late 19th century. And meanwhile, in the Gothic literary scene, vampires became a symbol of transformation that reflected these changes happening in the world. Uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1897, for instance, exemplifies the fear of the unknown and the other, and can be considered in parallel with the new products being imported as Britain expanded as a colonial power. Another example is a portrayal of the soul extracting colonizer in John William Polidori's novel, The Vampire, published in 1819. And the character of Ruthven here, supposedly a representation of Byron, is attacked by Greeks, um, an ironic echo of Byron's frequent references to the latter being subject to the destructive power of the Turks. And in Joseph Sheridan's Lifan News Carmilla, 1872, Laura and her father are colonizers in Styria when the former becomes a victim of the vampire, Mikala. Having been infected, Laura continues to travel conjuring the idea of movement and the further spread of what happened to her in Styria. So it's paradoxical that the monsters in these stories are those approached by outsiders in their own lands, infecting victims who then carry the otherness in their bodies to different places. And as Gothic monsters, they are essentially characterized by the idea of transformation and insatiable hunger. So food and hunger are simultaneously anticipated and feared causing vampires to re-energize themselves through consumption. Um, this process rests on the paradox that such consumption leads to an assimilation of food, causing it to be transformed into something different. So there is a darkness in this idea of energy exchange for the worse, where food and consumption create the shadow 
that the vampire lacks and food becomes this visible trace of the monster's non-existent reflection. Um, hunger as a gothic trope, as mentioned in relation to the figure of the vampire, can be applied to the extreme scenario of starvation versus a fullness that goes beyond satiety, which Garcia uses to symbolize the contrast between Cuba and the US. So she tackles the idea of boundaries through body narratives and the bodily horrors and controversies of incorporation where boundaries are lost and geopolitically questioned. So essentially, dark food is a recreation of traumatic memories through the medium of food and consumption. And it operates from contexts of exile, migration and diaspora as a reformation of memory through communication. So at the heart of the idea of dark food is a hunger to relive these past memories by rendering them translatable into our present. Um, I suppose dark food is a, is a way in which experiences linked to a traumatic event are just expressed through a language involving memory as a result of consumption. Food can allow us to continually recreate narratives of violence and oppression. And similarly to memory, no two dishes can ever be exactly the same. Um, no two memories can ever be exactly the same, really, because there are too many variables. Um, so, you know, when you're cooking, anything to do with timing or um, so many different details uh, are always different. So even in the best of restaurants, no two dishes can ever be the same. And I think the same goes for, for memory. Um, we can remember something, but it will never be this, exactly the same each time we remember it. And the same event can be remembered in many different ways by different people. In fact, sometimes people don't remember things the same way that you do. So that's, that's a really interesting thing. And food also is experienced in different ways by different people. Yeah, that is so interesting. I'm going to give you a little clap for that. Um, and my dog didn't bark in the background, so double claps, hey? Um, the beauty of the mute button. If only it worked on some people. Anyway, um, yeah, that was super interesting. So I wrote down a couple things. Sure. I'll be honest, some of them are going to sound super silly, but you got to just like work with me here. So... Um, one of the things that I think would be really useful, I, I think mostly for myself, just because this is a concept that is so incredibly new to me, is if you could summarize the concept of dark food in one sentence, how would you describe it? I think I would describe it as the recreation of past violent events through the medium of food. Okay. Okay. So that leads me to other aspects of that. So what was sort of the light bulb moment that made you think of the link between food and darker concepts relating to it? I think it was a film and a book called Babette's Feast where this lady appears in a Norwegian town coming, fleeing from France from the commune um, upheaval and she is silent. She doesn't know any Norwegian, so her communication is limited. But she starts cooking for a couple of old ladies who live in this Norwegian village. And she, re she creates um, a dinner because she's won the lottery in the meantime in France. And her friend sends over um, a lot of money. And she's able to purchase all this amazing food and create for them a feast. And... What she's doing is reliving through these dishes the death of her husband and her son 
who were brutally murdered during um, the commune era. And that made me think, because the first time I read the book, I hadn't really read it in those food terms. I just okay. saw it as a story of someone who was in exile or was fleeing from a difficult situation in another country and was entering into a community of very religious people and they had started bickering and she just wanted to create some peace and she did that through food and I thought oh how delightful but actually when you look at the specific dishes that she that she creates um like the quails in the coffin uh kailin sarcophage I think they're called and they actually represent the family that she's lost. And I thought, oh, she is not able to speak Norwegian, but she's able to speak through the food. So that was one of the first books, um, Babette's Feast by Karen Blixen or Isaac Dinesen, um, that made me rethink this idea of food as definitely something joyous, something that we do when we're happy because we eat together. And, uh, you know, th it, there is joy attached to food, obviously, but also how it can be something a lot darker and it can be a way of, um, reliving a, a past memory that has created anxiety and has created unpleasantness and preparing it for someone else and it, allowing them to experience what they have felt. So I feel that Babette was doing this through her feast. So suddenly everything became a little bit darker. She was obviously the head chef at the, at the Café Anglais, this very famous restaurant in Paris. And this Norwegian community did not know this at all. So they were shocked by how amazing the food was um, and, and then had started bickering, but then obviously made peace with each other because of the food. So this violence that can then transform um, a situation into a peaceful one is nearly a catharsis and dark food is, is I think is this, it's, it's a reliving of something that's very painful um, through food and it can have different outcomes. So in, in the case of Garcia, it's to do with sugar because of the importance of the sugar plantations and the slavery and the violence attached to that and how that then is transposed by the Cuban exile community in the US, but by using processed sugar. So we have this contrast between the old and the new. Um, and so different layers of time. So I mm. think it's not an, it's not a particularly easy concept and it, I've been working on this for four years. So, <laughs> so I appreciate that mm. to kind of explain it in a few sentences, um, it's probably not conveying it in a way that's um, super clear, but um, yes, I think by using some examples and I think people then, when they reread stories, they will probably think, oh, this, this could be an example of dark food, you know, a trauma that is relived through food. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, and I was thinking, and again, this is where my questions start to sound like I'm going down a rabbit hole, but just work with me on it. And I know we've talked about, I've been watching, my husband and I have been binging The Walking Dead. Oh. And... One of the, I, I think because I've been talking to you so much recently, there, like stuff you've been saying has been like resonating with me as I've been watching the show. And so, so we think you were talking about, you know, how monsters have this insatiable hunger. Mm. And my initial thought with The Walking Dead was, you know, once, if, and, and for those who've not seen The Walking Dead, basically uh, apocalyptic, end of world, TV series where um, everybody's infected with this virus and when you die you basically your 
you're a walking dead corpse and uh, you have this insatiable hunger. You turn into a monster and you have an insatiable hunger to eat other humans because why not? So, um, but I, I just wonder, do you think in a roundabout sort of way you can tie your concept of dark food to mainstream media and and film and those I mean you do talk about Dracula you do talk about Frankenstein but do you think that for those of us who maybe don't have an academic background or are trying to figure out how we can grasp this into other avenues other vehicles that maybe there could be a link there in some respects Oh, definitely to media. I think it's all about reforming memories. So media does this continually um, with all these TV shows, with radio, um, so many different channels of communication are constantly recreating an idea of food over and over again and using it in different ways. So I definitely think that this is um, a good comparison. Um, I mean, with The Walking Dead, uh, this idea of a constant transformation and decay and that really they eat, but it doesn't make them, it doesn't nourish them. So it's an interesting parallel because here also we're talking about a type of food that is really a reliving of a past memory. It's not so much meant to nourish you physically as much as it's meant to help you get through something which is unpleasant. So it's a different idea of food. Um, so yeah, definitely the media helps with a recreation of different ideas of what food can do. Um, and when you talked about The Walking Dead, the first thing I remembered was Glenn. Is it, his name is Glenn. He's a pizza delivery guy, right? Like the first episode, he managed yeah, to yeah. save himself because he knows all the routes because he's a pizza guy. So he's um, able to escape. Um, and That's you see like how, how, especially with, if we just take the example of pizza, um, pizza is so versatile in this way. It can really help um, explain a, a plethora of situations, normally negative. So normally you have pizza associated to either escape um, the devil, single, pe single, single parenthood, because often you, you will see a film and a single parent, you know, immediately is a single parent because they're serving a slice of pizza to their children. So you think, you know, and there's this recreation of the idea of pizza um, or the idea of what, uh, for example, the symbology of milk and what that, what that will mean in certain films as well. So we, we, we look at certain ingredients, certain food items and can definitely peg them to different characters and it just helps us interpret it. And I wonder you know, that also happens in reverse. So we also are then affected by our idea of that type of food. And I wonder how often we decide to eat a certain type of thing because we've seen it in the media somehow portrayed doing a certain thing, or maybe we think it, it kind of matches our character or what we should be doing. Um, so the same goes for like a, a very fancy lobster dish, you know, that we may or may not see in the film. Um, so it's a really interesting like exchange of food energy that we have. Huh. And, you know, and then like, the other things that were coming to mind as well. So you talked about how sugar um, was a way in which, um, you know, it represented colonialism. It represented, you know, a, a lot of really negative factors. But then the other way in which you morphed it is you said over time, sugar became a form of independence for the Cubans. In, uh, from the U.S., right? It gave them that sort of power of like, this is something that we have that you need now. Mm -hmm. 
And I wonder, in terms of other commodities, how this could possibly relate to the U.S. prohibition of Cuban cigars. Oh, Cuban cigars. Well, you know, um, there is still an embargo against Cuba. So, yes, definitely um, this idea of independence, but also a lot of, um, in a sense, weakness, because if it was the one card that they held that gave them power against the U.S., the U.S. made sure that in every other way Cuba was was punished. Um, with cigars and tobacco, um, coffee as well, all these other products, you know, um, the U.S. Um, has has been merciless when it comes to um, to the embargo and to how they decide to restrict um, food and medicine arriving to the island. So Cuba was very brave, really, in doing what they did and have used all the possible weapons that they had to to um, to contrast this oppression. Um, and obviously, the US is still very present in Cuba. So they'll always be linked. And I think this is what interests me, this link between both um, both countries, because they're so close geographically as well. Um, so Cuba was defined as the backyard of, of the US at one point. So in some ways, they'll always be connected, but the size is so different. Um, so it's always amazing. However one might feel with regards to communism, socialism, to Castro and dictatorship and the US, it's still something amazing, really, to think what Cuba did. Mm. Very I mean, it's a powerhouse, you know, it's like a David and Goliath mm. sort of thing. Very little resources, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the other thing I really liked that you brought up um, is this idea of dark tourism. And I have been like quietly following for years the dark tourism movement, which is quite new. I think it is it out of the University of Lancaster. Is that is that correct? Initially, um, I, I think they had so. a department here, of some sort. It's called um, The Darker Side of Travel. And it's edited by Richard Sharpley and Philip R. Stone. Okay. I think Philip R. Stone is definitely on Twitter if anyone wants to follow him. I communicate with him sometimes. I'm just trying to see where this comes from. I'm not like, I think it comes from a few places. The uh, University of Lancaster for sure, and then possibly somewhere else as well. Okay. Because um, you brought up some things that I thought were quite interesting. You know, I think. Um, you know, my I grew up in the tourism industry. My my family owns a tourism uh, industry in, in the U.S. And um, so when I saw dark tourism, that immediately perked my interest in terms of you know what does that look like. And then my initial thought was ghost tours. I was like, yeah, ghost tours, totally. Which could you know in a in a roundabout way it could pertain to that. But I think what it really tied into was what you said in terms of Ground Zero in New York mm -hmm. and um, going to, you know, Auschwitz, for example, mm -hmm. and that it isn't, it's almost like a morbid fascination, but I also feel like it's a respect for the events that unfolded. Yes. And I think um, in terms of dark food, I wonder if there's, also that respect element that maybe needs to be um, emphasized as well, or maybe and maybe you already have, and I'd be curious to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, there is a respect um, in, in recreating these events through food or the feelings that derive from these events through food. 
um, I guess there is a respect for the event. Uh, I haven't really underlined it in those terms um, because food is slightly different. It's not, you know, when I think of respect, it's as you say, when you go and visit somewhere and there is a statue or there is some commemorative um, event happening and or you respect like a, a silence, for example, at a certain place or uh, in front of a tomb. With food, the idea is that it, because it's something that you're making, it's something that you're you're physically involved in. Um, the element of respect isn't something that I've um, considered as such, but um, but definitely it could be. A, it's a definitely a form of commemorating. It's just something a bit more personal, I suppose. And then the fact that you're feeding it to others, um, whether they understand that that element of you know wanting to respect something, I don't know if that's the primary kind of aim and objective that one has when you are making these dishes. Um, I guess it's to include someone in your, in your suffering, it could be, um, mm -hmm. making them part of something. Um, definitely with religious um, events, you know, and, and uh, dishes that you, you can commemorate, for example, Passover, then we're all aware and we're all kind of party to that. And we, we know, for example, that we're eating, um, I don't know, the body and blood of Christ. So we all, we all know certain mm. things in certain ways. But if I think back at the initial text that I always have as a kind of blueprint, which is um, Babette's Feast, the other diners don't, don't know anything. Um, that's just her expressing herself and wanting to include it and to create a community around her. But it's not really important to her whether they know or not. Mm. They then find out because someone is there who was, or who recognizes her food and recognizes that she's a very famous chef from these very special dishes that she makes. She's the only one who's made them in Paris, but that's a different, um, that's a different thing. There just happens to be someone there who, who, who knows, but that's not her aim. So yes, perhaps there is a respect for the individual towards this and, but, but not probably as an extension as you would say with dark tourism, it's something which you do as a, as a collective. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, so I guess sort of my, my final question. Um, so Christina Garcia, I, I had never heard of her before um, we started talking. Could you tell us what led you to her book and then consequently what made you decide to use her book as, a, as kind of like the catalyst behind this concept that you've mm -hmm. created? Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm um, half Venezuelan and half Italian, but I was born in London and I moved around a lot throughout my whole life. I lived in Venezuela in different countries. Um, when I discovered this book, it really spoke to me in terms of uh, this idea of migration and diaspora and exile um, and uh, the fact that she, she wrote in Spanish and English. Um, mainly English. She's the first Cuban-American writer to be published in English, but she uses mm -hmm. words of Spanish. And that was quite unusual for me then as a teenager. So um, I've been kind of following her and buying all her books for quite a while. And so I felt like it represented me in terms of the memory aspect and things that you remember are never quite the same. And I have a brother and he he, we remember things very differently during these different times in different countries, and I think that fascinated me. Um, this concept of dreaming as well, dreaming in Cuban, so the idea that sometimes dreams can reveal a lot more about what you feel, you know, through your subconscious, 
and and then to be able to to express that through food was really really fascinating another writer who i love and i don't know if you know um is laura esquivel and she wrote um como agua para chocolate which is like water for chocolate but i don't i'm not 100 sure about the english title and again it's this use of food and that's that's based in mexico so a lot of these latin america and caribbean um writers um are you know i think great at expressing anything to do with um feeling like you're living somewhere but your mind and your heart might be somewhere else and then you travel to that somewhere else and then your heart and mind are back to where they were before and it's never you never feel complete so um i think that's what led me to her she's not that well known actually and she's written about uh, seven or eight books now and kind of all around the same theme um of exile and migration have you ever thought about reaching out to her oh she's still alive yes i could do that you should I, do yes i should do once my thesis is complete i will send it to yeah why not i mean what have you got to lose burn it. you know no i shouldn't burn it you should definitely <laughs> not burn it your thesis um but um no i think you definitely should i mean i think with things like this um you never know people never know the sort of impact that their work can create and i think a lot of us especially creatives we <clears throat> want people to like our work but we do it because it gives us a sense of joy as well and so i think sometimes we get lost in the um process and forget that um that there might be people listening or reading and that that is a really good thing so i think i think you should definitely center message. I will do Anne. You've inspired me now. I will I will muster some courage and once it's done and then mark it urgent. <laughs> <laughs> Mandatory. <laughs> it's my thesis. <laughs> cool. Well, I have to say that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host Dr. Anne Wand. I'd like to thank Ali again for her wonderful talk this afternoon. If you enjoyed listening to the show, make sure to like, subscribe, leave a review and consider becoming a patron. Starting at one pound per month, patrons get early access to ad-free episodes, bonus content, video interviews and a chance to talk with our coolest guest speakers. Just go to patreon.com slash coffee and cocktails podcast and sign up today. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.